0: But then when you look at the percentage of dollars that you actually get to put in your pocket, you take a small percentage. I always tell people of all the revenue that comes in, you know, generally you're only going to put 10% of the gross rents or 20% of the gross rents in your
1: pocket after all expenses. So Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today our guest is Joel Florick. Today you are going to learn the three tiers of capital allocation for real estate investors and asset managers. Joel is a very uh, organized guy, organized mentally. He's got these things narrowed down. He's got a very clear concept around this. This is a great listen. If you're looking for a way to think about planning the business of your investments, the business of your real estate that you're buying. This is a great interview to listen to. You can learn a lot from listening to Joel's process. And you know what? Just listen to it and steal the steal these ideas. These are great ideas. So you're gonna really enjoy this one. I enjoyed it. Uh, there's quite a bit in there at the end. He's got a he's got a great story. And uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Joel Floric. Here we go. Joel, thanks for joining us today. Hey, happy to be here, Taylor. Happy to be talking with you. Could you introduce our listeners to yourself, your background, and what you do before we get into the topic for today?
0: Yeah, I'm a multifamily investor from Michigan City, Indiana. It's where I currently call home, originally from Marquette, Michigan, all the way up uh, on the shores of Lake Superior. I started investing in real estate with a small four-unit property, (laughs) When I graduated from uh, college, house hacked that. have worked creative financing structures uh, for the deals that I've done since then. I followed up with a 16-unit, a 3-unit, an 8-unit, uh, and most recently uh, sponsored syndication for a 15-unit townhome portfolio, um, along with uh, was a general partner and 107-unit. Um, property that we closed up earlier this summer as well. Actively working to syndicate larger uh, apartment communities that can support on site property management.
1: Cool. That's a very uh, succinct and uh, um, full resume. You've got a lot of experience. And the topic that we're going to discuss today is the three tier hierarchy of capital allocation. In asset management. Now, it's a word soup, but it's a lot of great words, a great topic. And uh, I'm excited to dive into this. Can you first tell us about why it's important to have such a hierarchy before we get into the actual you know, tiers of the hierarchy?
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, when we're investing in multifamily real estate, we're not just buying some random piece of dirt and hoping that uh, the stars are going to align and the assets going to appreciate we're buying a business and we need to have a plan for the business and things don't always go to plan. So we need to make sure that um, we have some sort of a plan, a process um, that we can fall back on as we are going through the years of execution on uh on that business so i kind of put together my own hierarchy for how i always want to think about what i should be spending my dollars on because ultimately every year you're going to be pushing close to your budgets and you're going to be wanting to do more um you're going to have to drop certain projects push them off to the next year Uh, And you need to make sure though, that you're taking care of the most important things. You know, what, what, what's your one thing, right? people always say that with goal setting with, you know, what you're going to spend your time doing. Well, we need to look at our business and say, what's the one thing that we need to write a check for today Uh, or tomorrow for that matter. So that's where I kind of came up with this hierarchy. So that way uh, it can be more deliberate and clear in why I'm doing things on a a day-by-day or or month-by-month basis.
1: Cool. I I like that a lot. I mean, I I totally agree that probably our first priority or one of our first priorities as business owners is allocating capital and really making sure we have some kind of algorithm or, or some way to make decisions. And it helps if we Write that algorithm before we have to start making some of these tough decisions in our business. So, let's get into it. Let's start with uh, you know the the first tier of this three tier hierarchy.
0: Yeah, first tier is uh, get units rented. So uh, I I always like to tell people money solves problems. Uh, You got a leaky roof? Well, just write a check and you can get a contractor to come and replace it for you. Uh, if, if you've got, you know, mechanical systems that are breaking down, write a check. You can get them replaced. Uh, it's really easy. Your car breaks down. Just go to the dealership, buy a brand new vehicle, uh, write a check. It's easy. Well, you can only write so many checks. So um, the, the vacant space is the easiest way to be able to capture the most dollars, Uh, just toured a property earlier this year. It was a 48 unit property, ended up losing out our best and final. I was pretty frustrated about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, in touring the property during my due diligence as we were preparing for best and final, uh, I found out that there were a couple units that were completely vacant uh, down units, as you'll typically hear them referred to, missing appliances, flooring in terrible condition, uh, you know, some holes in the walls. And they ended up just becoming storage units for the maintenance manager. And when I asked why didn't they start renting those out, the answer that the property manager provided was that the owner didn't have the money available in the budget that year to be able to get those units back online. Well, that year was two years ago, which meant that between those two units, they had missed out on about thirty thousand dollars in revenue over the last two years. Um, that revenue would go straight to the NOI. So uh, ultimately, that's that's the cash in their pocket at the end of the day. So uh, they could have just spent ten grand, uh, bucked up, you know, went to the bank, maybe got a a, a you know a loan. Uh, frankly, pull out a credit card, uh, go spend the money, get those units online, get them rented and get those dollars in. Uh, Mm Vacancy is the the biggest place that people lose out on dollars.
1: Absolutely. Do you think that is a more common occurrence maybe in the the mom and pop owner type of situation where maybe the owners are retired and they're dependent on that income to you know, fund their lifestyle or they've owned the building so long that maybe they've got a little complacent or maybe they haven't kept rents up or what do you think are some of the biggest causes that, um, that co- force people to, to not uh, act on this and get their vacant units rented?
0: Yeah, I would say complacency is certainly a big one. Just they don't necessarily need it. And they look at their, vacancy number and they say, Oh, we're doing pretty well. We're at 85%. We're at 90%. Well, 90% sounds good. But then when you look at the percentage of dollars that you actually get to put in your pocket, you take a small percentage. I always tell people of all the revenue that comes in, you know, generally you're only going to put 10% of the gross rents or 20% of the gross rents in your pocket after all expenses. So that 10% vacancy uh, from your top line revenue could end up being a 50% decline in the cash flow that goes in your pocket. But people look at the 90% occupancy and they say, oh, we're, we're doing well as a business owner when eh, frankly, you're, you're missing out uh, on quite a bit. Uh, I also think that, you know, from my experience of what I've seen, um, people, again, don't do a very good job of allocating capital over the life cycle of their asset. And what ends up happening is all of a sudden their mechanicals start, start failing. They get a ton of water heaters and AC units and furnaces that are going down. They've got roofs that have to be replaced. They've got a bad parking lot. And then it all of a sudden starts to be a situation where then they not, they can't rent the units out for as much as they used to be able to. And, you know, money continues to get tighter and tighter. So when those units become vacant, they say, gosh, it's $5,000. And that's $10,000 or $15,000 to get it back online. I just, I just don't have the money. So, you know, we're going to steal appliances from that unit to move them to another unit. Their furnace was bad. So that's no good, but we can also steal the AC and move it over here. Uh, And basically they strip the unit to now it's $20,000 to get it back online. And then they do it to the next unit and the next unit. And then they, you know, end up with five, 10, 15% or more of their units uh, that are getting stripped away and, you know, unrentable down units.
1: Oh, sounds like a rough situation. So, all right, number 1, we're going to we're going to fill our vacancies, we're going to get renters in the units. Number 1. What about the second tier of the hierarchy? Yeah, maximize
0: your ROI. So, arguably, you know, the the first thing is obviously, we already talked about filling units. That's probably going to be your best ROI. Uh, but there's a lot of projects that you can start taking on, whether um, cleaning up your landscaping is going to provide better curb appeal and make it easier to rent units. Uh, we just did that on our 15 unit that we just acquired uh, in Chesterton, Indiana. That was our, our big value-add project. Spend 5000 bucks on some fencing and new landscaping beds And it just makes a big impact when people come up to the property, they feel much better about paying a higher price and they feel that their landlords care about them as renters and they feel more confident in trusting that landlord to be the caretaker of their new home. Um, So that can go a long way. It might be, you know, upgrade your kitchen, you know, do you replace all the cabinets or do you reface the cabinets? That's an important question. you got to look at your boxes. Are your boxes good enough that you don't have to replace them? Uh, I just redid two kitchens uh, at uh, my second property that I purchased, a 16-unit. Replacing the cabinets would have cost about probably $1,600 between material and labor. Refacing the cabinets only cost $1,000 between material and labor, and they look phenomenal. Uh, they look really good. You honestly can't hmm. tell. So again, think about how you can maximize ROI. There's a lot of times you can look at how to be more efficient about designing your units. So that way you can do a better job. Another thing that I like to think about is how do you kind of build out a, a modular unit for that matter? Do you put the vinyl plank floor that you know, is in these days floating throughout the entire unit or do you try and break it up where maybe the living room has a certain flooring and the kitchen has a certain flooring and the entryway has a certain flooring so if entryway flooring gets damaged really easy so in the next unit turn you can just replace that small section of flooring as opposed to having to spend you know hundreds or a thousand dollars more to replace, you know, the entire flooring throughout the unit. So that's another thing I like to think of. Um, Another area, mechanicals. Uh, The 16 unit I bought, the previous owner kind of had a rule of thumb that he would never replace an appliance uh, or a a mechanical system until he absolutely had to. So he would just pay for repair after repair after repair after repair. And we ended up with you know, nearly 30-year-old water heaters, electric water heaters, because he just kept replacing the thermostats and the, you know, the elements in it and all the kind of electrical components. But the problem is they filled up with a foot of sediment. So the lower element was just <laughs> sitting in sediment and they would go out on an annual basis. So my basic rule of thumb was that, okay, every time a water heater went out, we simply just replaced it. Um, So that way we knew we had a good water heater in there. And hopefully for the next 10 years, we shouldn't have any um, emergency calls on any
1: of those new water heaters. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting strategy he had. I mean, you're, it's going to be a curve going upward about, you know, how many, how frequently you get um, get those issues. And, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned a lot of these things that, right now I'm I'm in the middle of uh, redoing my personal residence to rent it out and move on to the next one. In addition to my multifamily investments, you mentioned two that are on my mind, the uh, kitchen remodel and then the kitchen flooring. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the cabinets are 60 years old and have just been painted over and painted over. And I think it's probably time to replace all of them. Yep. tile flooring is original as well, or near enough as to make no difference. And, uh, got a few cracks, needs to be replaced. And I think I'm, I'm at that point where refacing, I don't know whether it's going to work. I kind of don't think so. Even the boxes are fine conditioned, like they're getting pretty old. So this is uh, near and dear to my heart, this conversation, but uh, without, we won't go into that any further. What about number three, this third tier of the strategy? Yeah, do you risk your asset?
0: So uh, this is the one that I get the most questions on, where people say, hmm, I I, I don't really understand that one per se. Um, So I've got a couple examples of things that I've done in my properties to de-risk them over the last couple of years. My 16 unit, for example, we had a water drainage issue. Uh, It never flooded a unit, but what happens is when we get big rains, we get all the water from the roof of the building, from the parking lot, from the roof of our parking structure, and because of poor design from our city uh, in that town where a lot of their water runs off onto our property, and then it all puddles into basically the entrance. And that fills up a basically drainage area, a retention pond, and then it creeps its way up to a unit. And it gets to where basically the person opens their door and they're stepping into a three-inch deep puddle. Ooh. Um, very scary. So couple things that we just did. This is in the third year of the asset. So did a lot of, uh, you know, filling units and maximizing ROI type projects. And now finally in my third year, I said, okay, now I'm ready to allocate some capital to de-risking this asset. So uh, we expanded the retention pond. We about uh, basically tripled the volume that that area, you know, could hold for water. Um, which means that we get significantly less flooding into the street, um, which is great. We've only had that happen, I think twice this year where it used to happen uh, probably twice a month, um, which, uh, which was pretty scary. And then the other thing we did is we built, uh, basically dug out an emergency overflow that wrapped around the edge of the property. So we dug down about a foot, foot and a half, and then uh, basically rounded out, laid new sod in there. So if the water ever got so high that it reached the building, the path of least resistance is to basically go into our um, little overflow and it runs like a river right around the side of the building back into uh, the lake that's the, that the building sits on. So um, that has happened once since we've done the project and it it worked exactly as designed Um, another thing that uh, you know we have done is we expanded the area that we have for moving snow so we had some situations where uh, we get some really big winter storms and the snow piles would fill up so much by our entrance that it made it pretty difficult to see around as residents were leaving their carports so you might have people coming into the property and coming out of their carports at the same time. Um, and you know that was making people pretty nervous. It was making me nervous. Obviously, I never want to see anybody have an accident um, on the property. So we expanded uh, the area where we could move snow to a different part of the property. So that way, um, we moved snow banks to kind of a safer place. Now, it was also a project that we could get some nice little ROI out of because, you know, typically I would have to um, pay once or twice a winter for snow to get removed by a loader. So that way we could clear out our areas and and have more room for snow. So um, kind of, you know, uh, it killed two birds with one stone, if you will, on that particular project. Some other ideas, you know, you might be cutting down trees. uh, If you have dead branches that are hanging, Uh, make sure you get in there, get those down, uh, prevent any sort of insurance issues that could come up. You might grind down uh, walkways. You know, if if you have a concrete sidewalk that's uh, starting to lift itself up and it becomes a tripping hazard, you might want to come in there and, uh, you know, with a, a special machine that can grind down that concrete so you have a nice smooth walkway um, it's something that in, you know, HUD, uh, regulated properties, they're going to ding you on, on the sheet and, you know, other properties, that's typically something the city's never going to come say anything about, but it could be a potential insurance claim that you might have to make if somebody trips and breaks their arm or something. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think you're in a softer sense or a softer, uh, return sense, your residents, your tenants, notice that you're making a lot of these changes, especially year over year. They'll see, okay, they ground down this part of the sidewalk, so I'm not going to trip here. They'll see, you know, that it's safer to to drive if you're piling the snow up somewhere else. To to use both of your examples, and time over time, you know, they'll come to appreciate that you're making changes to the property, particularly if it was previously owned by somebody that wasn't really taking care of it. So, yeah it can hit your return too. Very Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Well, that's great. I, I like all of these three. That's very helpful. And uh, you also wanted to talk today about goal setting in your life and your real estate investments. Let's touch on that a little bit. I mean, you, you said you started with a quad uh, right as soon as you could basically start buying real estate. So that's great. I mean, how do you think about this, uh, this goal setting you know, mindset in your life? Yeah. I mean, you hear
0: people talk about mindset and goals exhaustively. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds, probably thousands of books um, related to the subject. There tends to be some problems though, that I believe come up with some of the ways that people talk about goal setting. Um, I guess I'll start out with kind of the you know, general theme that I think works well, but then I I like to break up uh, kind of a a different component to it. So, um, you know, visualize what do you want your life to look like? You know, what are the things that you want to be doing? Where do you want to live? What type of material things do you need or want to be able to achieve the lifestyles, you know, the things that you like to do? So I love to sail. Right. So I, I, I want a sailboat, um, <laughs> you know, I'd love a, a great, big, beautiful, expensive racing boat that I can bring all my friends out on and, you know, <laughs> we can do the ocean racing and, you know, that'd be fantastic. So um, there's, there's the part about basically visualizing and designing your life um, so that way you can see it, touch it, feel it in your mind, you can taste it, um, assign dollar value to that, Right. How much is that going to cost you? Then think about it a little more critically. You know, do you have to own the private jet or could you just use one of those jet share programs? So (laughs) you're only spending 50 grand a year on your airfare or a hundred grand a year on your airfare versus having to spend 20 million. Uh, Tony Robbins does a great little exercise where somebody stands up and says like, I have to be a billionaire. Like that's the only way I can live the lifestyle I want. You know, he wanted a super yacht. He wanted a private jet. He wanted, you know, have these beautiful vacations. And you know, basically Tony Robbins says like, Hey, can, can you just use a jet share program and, you know, rent a jet when you want to fly private, how much do you need to spend per month? To, or, you know, 20 grand a month to do that, 10 grand a month, like, okay, now you can live that lifestyle. How much are you really gonna spend time on the super yacht? And the guy was like, ah, probably three weeks a year. And your is like, <laughs> okay. So if you're only gonna spend three weeks a year, how much does it cost? And yeah, you know, super yachts range from like tiny ones, fifty thousand a week up to a million dollars a week or potentially more. Um but still, so you can say, okay, well, now you only need to have $250,000 in your budget for your super yacht you know, uh, desires. And basically, he broke down this guy's expensive, crazy lifestyle. And thinking about it a little more critically, said, you don't need to be a billionaire. You just need to make about a million bucks a year after taxes. So plan on making two million bucks a year. What kind of jobs or businesses could you create to do that? and then go out and make it happen. Um, So I really like the way that Tony Robbins talks about kind of thinking critically about living this dream life, if you will. Here's the problem. For most people, making $2 million a year, when you might be struggling to, you know, feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck, your household might be making... 30, 50, 70, or even a hundred thousand dollars, 2 million bucks could seem totally out of reach because you know, you're never going to make that in your current job. You've got to totally transform and change your life. So it just becomes this kind of, you know, put up that stuff on your vision board and it could almost be discouraging from mm-hmm. a daily basis. So what I like to tell people to do is break down that dream life into three different steps. So maybe that $2 million a year is your like ultimate dream life. I'll call that level three. Level two though, what does that look like? You know, maybe you're not flying a private jet. Maybe you're just flying first class wherever you go, right? Maybe you're not renting a super yacht. Um, but you know, maybe you just have a, nice boat of your own that costs you $50,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, that's mm-hmm. still a really nice budget. So you could, you could have a nice 50, 60 foot you know, yacht sitting uh, in the marina and, and be able to go enjoy it for that budget. So maybe your level two dream life is $250,000 or $500,000 a year that you need to make. And then level one is the closest thing to where you're at so it might be that currently you have a w-2 job and you just you hate working for somebody you want to have the feeling of financial independence and freedom so it might be how do i replace the income i'm making now by working for myself and making sure that i have the time in my schedule to do some of the things that i love to do so for me My dream life level one was making $75,000 a year. It was having about 10 weeks a year of what I like to call flex time, where it's not necessarily a pure vacation, but it means I can answer emails while I'm sitting at the dock at a, you know, sailing regatta. Um, I can, you know, answer some phone calls while I'm, you know, on the beach with, uh, you know, with my family down in Florida on a trip. Mm -hmm. So uh, you might stay with family when you go someplace. I, you know, get a little creative. Uh, But for me, I'm living my dream life. Every day I get to wake up and say, I am living my dream life today, right now. And that feels fantastic. It's, It's the most empowering feeling I think you can have is to say that you are doing exactly what you want to be doing. Now, I want more, don't get me wrong. I've got level two and three that I'm chasing after right now, and I'm working hard every day to do it, but I get to do it with a smile. And even when things get tough, I know that I'm where I want to be, where I said I was going to be, and and I did the work and I made it happen. Um, And that gives me the confidence that I can make the next step happen, even if I don't completely know how uh, I'm gonna be able to do it.
1: Nice, I like that. It's definitely an empowering way to think about things once you hit that first level, and if I can read your mind a little bit, I can tell you like the number three. So we're yeah. gonna take a quick break for our sponsor, and I got three questions for you right after that. All right, Joel, I got three questions for you. Are you ready? I am. All right, first question What is the best investment that you've ever made? Uh, A lot of people like to say the first investment was the best investment. And sure,
0: that was great. Um, But I will say that my second deal that I did was a 16 unit property. And the reason why I like to say that was my best investment is because that's when real estate turned from a hobby to a business for me. With my four unit, I knew that I could pay all the bills with my day job. If everything went wrong... I could fully support it off of my W2 income. When I bought the 16 unit, that's when the numbers got real and my W2 income couldn't support that. So the only way that I could support the property was to make sure that I filled the units, that I raised the the rents by, you know, doing value add projects that I made sure that, you know, I took care of the property so it would produce, you know, income for me for years to come. Um, I worked out a great creative financing structure to get that deal done. I bought a $685,000 property for only $5,000 down. Um, wow. It cash flowed about a thousand and a half bucks a month for me right away. Now that property does over $3,000 a month for me. Um, so it's, it's really been a great asset. Um, I've refied out a bunch of capital, still cash flow really well. So I've been able to use that capital to go buy more deals. Um, so it, it uh, for me that was the big turning point where I said I'm I'm going to
1: do this multifamily thing full time. Nice, I like that. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? The worst investment. So the first
0: unit that I went to go renovate, I was so excited. Um, I, you know, I had these visions of making this beautiful unit. So I bought granite countertops. Uh, I did a really nice job on making this, uh, you know, tile floors that floated through the kitchen into the entryway into the bathroom. I tiled the whole backsplash of the bathroom uh, of the tub stall, uh, the tub surround. Um, and then people came in for showings and the first thing that they said was wow look at how bright the lights are look at the paint it's you know it's it's a nice clean paint scheme it's so bright in here it's so nice and i'm like look at the thousand dollar countertop right in front of your (laughs) face don't you like that (laughs) and and frankly the the renter demographic who is renting that specific unit, that was not something that they cared about. Sure, it was nice, but all they really cared about is having a clean unit that looked like their owner took care of it. You know, They don't want water leaks, they don't want holes in the walls. Um, I spent $120 on those LED recessed lights that sat in the ceiling tiles. And that's what they loved. Um, so needless to say, I spent probably a month and a half, uh, because I did the work myself of extra work trying to really go above and beyond. And I spent thousands of dollars more than I should have. And now if I ever have any problems in that unit, it's gonna cost me a lot more now to fix any of that tile work. So ultimately I wasted a lot of money and I'm so thankful it was on the very first unit I did because I learned a lot. And uh feel like I have not made that mistake
1: uh, since then. Nice. Well, once we hit stop on the record button, I got a, a few questions for you about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll do that offline. My favorite question of these three is, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing?
0: The, the most important lesson I would say is uh, to make sure that you're very clear about uh, your goals. And it goes right back to all the goal setting. So why are you doing what you're going to do? Um, make sure you really understand it. And you understand that, you know, the goals that you're shooting towards are, are going to actually help you achieve what you want. Because ultimately, what we all want is to be able to have, uh, you know, the lifestyle that fits with our own Kind of aspirations and you know hobbies and, and family and what have you. Um, so uh, kind of a, an example, I almost bought a window manufacturing company, um, had you know, 15, 20 employees, did almost $2 million in revenue. It's really low margin business, but it would have still been a good deal for me. Um, the numbers made sense. But when I sat back and thought about what that business would do to my lifestyle, um, I, I was really worried. And I didn't think that, uh, I, I thought actually that it would more likely than not bring me away from my goals that I had for what I wanted my lifestyle to look like. So uh, I was, you know, under contract, had my money down on the deal, uh, and kind of you know, in in the 11th hour, I decided to back out of that contract because I felt that it would hinder the lifestyle that I would have with my family. Um, And I decided to shift my focus and just stick with multifamily, which was doing a great job at the time of getting me closer to that lifestyle. So just make sure you're really clear about, you know, why are you doing what you're doing
1: today? Nice. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that example in that uh, decision, the thought process. It really sounds like uh, you did make the right decision for you and that buying that company really would have uh, negatively impacted your lifestyle toward the, you know, away from the direction that you wanted to go. So that's great. Uh, thank you for everything today. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about what you've got going on and uh, get in touch? Yeah, joel at jfhcapital.com
0: is my email. You can go to jfhcapital.com. Uh, it's my website. Uh, check me out. Um, I'm on Facebook, pretty active there, pretty active on bigger pockets as well. Uh, so feel free to uh, connect and love to chat with anybody. Uh, talk about real estate, talk about life, talk about sailing.
1: So. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, you, you mentioned sailing, but prior to that, I've been thinking, is that map over his shoulder, a nautical map? It definitely kind of looks like a nautical. It,
0: it, it is. Uh, that map is actually one which we used uh, in college. I used to captain a uh, 47-foot catamaran, take a bunch of my college friends. So they would get cool. back like 15 of us. We'd drive 30 hours down to uh, Fort Lauderdale rent this boat. We'd all pack on it. We'd sail across the Gulf stream about 55 miles over to Bimini Island in the Bahamas, do what college kids do, you know, have fun, enjoy life uh, in in the Bahamas for the week and then sail back, hop in the car, drive 30 hours North, uh, back to the winter uh, at Michigan tech. And, um, that was our, that was our spring break for a couple of years in college. Uh, so anyways, that, that map is of Bimini Island, uh, uh, means I've had a lot of good memories there. So it always reminds me, again, what's, what's my goal. And yeah, I want to take my family off on a, you know, cruise around the world someday. That's something my wife and I met through sailing. So I always want to make sure that we keep that close to us. Even as life gets crazy, we have a little two, you know, two, two and a half year old daughter, um, you know, working on growing the business. So got to keep, keep focused on what the bigger picture really
1: is. That's great. I love that story. That's awesome. I'm, um, I'm, I'm glad I asked, and uh, it's been a great conversation day. Anybody that's interested should uh, definitely reach out. The, the email address and the link you mentioned are going to be in the show notes for anybody that missed it, or you can certainly uh, rewind and catch that. Uh, once again, thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for everything. Perfect. Hey, thank you, Taylor. Been a great conversation to everybody out there. I hope you are enjoying the show. If you are please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. is a very big help. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. I'm sure we can help them out as well. Hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.